Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we listen in on a Twitter Spaces discussion hosted by Andrew Karima and Pablo Felgueres as part of their series on American industrial dynamism. Check out industrialdynamism.com and at more factories. Tons of great speakers join, including Liz Stein, Jake Bullock, Jake Chapman, Griffin Barnicut, John Doolin, AJ Piplica, and yours truly. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us today on our weekly Spaces where we hold discussions around manufacturing and industrial startups. We're building an American industrial dynamism because we believe supporting startups is an effective way of restoring the industrial base of the United States. And this is an example of a discussion where we bring speakers from different avenues. It could be investors, engineers, technologists, and we, and we discuss problems and, and, and solutions in this space. So today we're going to chatting about acquiring the government as a customer for industrial and defense startups. We have Andrew Carino from Cantos moderating, and I'm going to pass it to him to interview the other speakers and kick it off from there. Andrew? Hey, my name's Andrew Carino, and I'll be directing the conversation today on acquiring the government as a customer, especially for startups. Just a quick background on what I do. I'm a hard tech analyst at Cantos Ventures, where we invest in the near frontier. So deep tech companies or to some of you, industrials that scale and will positively impact the world in our lifetimes. Okay, so we'll just get going with the speakers we have on the board right now. We'll go with Jake Chapman first from Army Ventures. Yep, my name's Jake Chapman. I'm the managing director of the Army Venture Capital Corporation. For those who don't know, I certainly wouldn't blame you um, for not knowing. We are the uh, the equivalent to InQtel, but for DoD. So Congress back in 2002 basically set up the the structure for a venture capital firm to work for the Department of Defense. For the last 10 years, the organization's effectively been dormant. And I took it over fairly recently to try and revitalize it because I think we are in a time in our nation and in our history where we really can't afford to leave any tools in the tool chest. So I've been working on this for the last six months or so, and uh, I'm excited to to be here today. Thank you, Jake. Up next, let's go with Liz Stein from Prime Movers Lab. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Andrew and everyone. I'm really excited for the discussion today. So a little bit about my background and why I'm on this panel. I started out about 15 years ago working in small business. So I got to trudge through the joys of uh, SBIR proposals and all of that, and eventually made my way to an FFRDC, uh, one of our uh, nation's labs for the Department of Energy out here in Livermore, California, and still saw inefficiencies in the way the government is funding things. So one of my personal hobbies was researching innovative ways to do funding, including things like the other transaction authority and open BAA structures. So I'm really excited to chat about this with everyone and share some learnings and things I've discovered along the way. So thanks for having me. Thank you, Liz. And next we'll go with Griffin Barnicut. Previously built a defense company, sold some really interesting cyber defense technology to some governments. Ended up moving on, founding a company now focused on selling a whole different type of, a whole bunch of different types of technology to both the DOD and civilian sectors within the federal government. So lots of interesting thoughts there. Sweet. Thank you, Griffin. Then Jake Bullock uh, with, and I do not want to crucify your name, but Raven, I believe. Thanks, Andrew. Raven, actually, we just, we obviously dropped the E because we're a startup. I'm oh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, all good. All good. Yeah. So my background, I spent eight years as a Navy in the kind of early to mid 2000s, ended up leaving the, the Navy in 2011 after four deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. During those deployments, had a number of experiences overseas where I felt the pain of the lack of technology available to warfighters on the battlefield. And so when I left, I was laser focused on building some tech I could bring back into the DOD and really solve some of the problems for 
four guys that were going to be going downrange that I had experienced and went to school, I studied computer science, I slowly worked my way into learning how one starts a company and then ultimately works with the DOD. And uh, in 2017, founded Raven. And when we initially founded, we were focused on soldiers controlling drones, recently pivoted into a uh, communications tool that helps the DOD channel a lot of its really complex and varied data types into really simple and actionable communications. And uh, so, you know, I've been in the DOD sphere for a long time, first as a user, now as a founder, gone through the CIVR process, the OTA process, worked with labs, program offices, mostly in the SOCOM sphere, but not entirely. So have, definitely have some very strong opinions on working with the DOD and hopefully can help help others avoid some of the mistakes that we've made. Thank you, Jake. And finally, John Dolan from Modern Intelligence. So I'm the CEO and founder of Modern Intelligence, and we're an AI defense company building one AI for defense. We're a seed stage startup, about 10 people based out of Austin, Texas. And our first product is a all-purpose, all-sensor maritime AI, Cutlass. But I don't come from a defense background, so I've had to learn a lot in the last 18 months. Originally, I studied physics and then worked in industry machine learning out in the Bay. But both as a physicist and technologist, I always noticed that the great technological breakthroughs of the history normally came from weapons. And that wasn't happening today. But I'm pretty sure if the future of defense is AI, the future of AI is also in defense. And so that's why we do a lot of really ambitious AI research at modern. We are still new to the government market, but we've seen a lot in the last nine or 10 months and learned a lot. So happy to talk about it. Thanks. All right. Thank you, John. Without further ado, I'm going to jump straight into it. I'll start at a high level here. So everyone can get a background on what this is all about and what are the processes in acquiring the government as a customer, because a lot of deep tech frontier technologies or industrials, that's usually their go-to market strategy. So if anybody would like to take up this question on what is the procurement process and program, what is a program of record? Also, I do want to add into that, what is acquisition? So what is procurement versus acquisition and how does program of record fit into I'm a, a little bit bad that Eric Lofgren's not here because this one is like the perfect question for him. He's been researching acquisition for uh, George Mason for a while now, but I'll take a stab at the question. So the idea of the program of record and the way the acquisition process as we know it today started was, I'm going to go with back in the 50s. So it's, it's been a long line since then. And I don't know if this is a joke or just the way people think about it, but the um, PPB and E process, program planning, budget and execution process, it it's essentially more centralized than anything the Soviet Union ever did for planning how to do procurement. And that's top-down flow of requirements. Originally, the idea was for systems engineering to guide the process and for the government to not be wasteful in its procurement. But it's become something entirely different today. Okay. This is a question I have specifically for John. From your experience with modern intelligence, what is the current path from R&D innovation to program of record and how, what are the trials and tribulations you've had to go through with acquiring government as a customer? That's a great question. The answer is whatever you can cobble together with the uh, duct tape, string and gum. So going back to what Liz mentioned. So part of the reason a program of record as a word is meaningful is there are so many moving pieces in government acquisitions as it's done today, that it's very hard to get all the pieces lined up to get a contract done get paid for it, and when you build in the hands of the user. So really you can think of trying to find a government customer and sell a contract and get paid for it as actually trying to find and work with three people inside of the government is, of course, a acquisitions officer, sometimes called like a contract officer, KO, and they have some sort of authority to work with you. Then trying to find a user sometimes, an operator, a warfighter, or a command who wants to use um, what you're using in the field. and these are the actual users. And then finally, the funders. And this is someone who it's an office normally in some way associated with your users and your you know, contract officer who is willing to foot the bill for what they want to buy. And part of the reason a program of record is important is 
normally what is meant by a program of record is a very large project, meaning lots of money, where all three of those things are basically taken care of because they are a line item in a congressional budget. And so normally when you're trying to go to market in the early days, what you're trying to do is cobble together those three people, an acquisitions officer, a user, and then a funder together, and then try to find some sort of authority somewhere to buy what you're trying to sell and get them all aligned without any congressional mandate actually saying that can be done. So it's like building a coalition. And honestly, the way this coalition comes together can happen in lots of different ways. Sometimes there's an RFP. More recently, we're finding there's not. Sometimes there's like authority, like an OTA and a SIPR. Sometimes at least, you know, not at first. And sometimes so you send a white paper off to one office and two months later, boom rings back around to you because that office talked to another office, talked to another office and like it, it, it came back to you. So on one hand, you can think systematically about doing it, but there really is no system. And basically surviving in this environment long enough until you can actually win a program of record is what people talk about when they talk about the value of death. However, we have used SIPRs. So we have won a $1.25 million direct to phase two SIPR with the Air Force for Cutlass. And these do some things like make your life easier, not just giving you money, but helping give contract officers new and better authorities to make it easier to work with you across the government. So it is a complex process and it's chaotic in the early days, but I'll stop there for questions or if anyone else wants to jump in. So I want to extend, just lay out the, the landscape from a 30,000 foot view. And there are a lot of terms like acquisition versus R&D versus program of record, contracting authority. And you want to understand the whole map to really be able to put those pieces in place. So the DOD basically has this really, the way the process is supposed to is this really lengthy cycle where they release a request for a proposal, all the companies compete for it, they get selected, and then they spend X number of years developing the technology that was requested in the, what's called the S&T or the science and technology world. That's very, you could be working with a lab in that world, like Office of Naval Research or AFWorks or these different groups, the FFRDCs that, that Liz mentioned. And when you're working in that realm, you're frequently not even in touch with an actual buyer. Uh, a buyer on the acquisition side, which the way it's supposed to work, you build for, let's say, two to three years under this sort of science and technology umbrella. And then once the technology is complete, it does what's called transition into a program of record, which is like they said, it's a line item in the budget, which effectively says this is a thing that we are legally obligated to buy for our armed services. That's the broader landscape. And you separate the R&D &D side where you have all the non-recurring engineering, the SBIRs, the, and then you have your procurement side, which is what's typically known as acquisitions or in a program of record. The problems start to arise when there's a breakdown between connecting all the things that happen in the R&D world with all the people that actually buy things. So the, in this case will be like, I'm a buyer for night vision goggles for special operations. I have, let's say 2,500 Navy SEALs that I buy night vision goggles for, and I'm supposed to have a lab that's doing research that's funneling technology into my program. So I'm constantly getting a new stream of technology from Office of Naval Research or some of these other different groups. Unfortunately, John mentioned the Valley of Death. That is usually when that sort of funnel isn't connected at all. From a founder's perspective, and I'm going to sit, talk about all of this in the, from the perspective of somebody that wants to hit milestones every 18 to 24 months to continue raising venture capital and continue to scale. When you're in the R&D cycle and you're working with a lab like a Office of Naval Research or uh, DARPA, you are not actually in the sales cycle, unfortunately, in the DOD, because you're not actually talking to a buyer who has a set of priorities and knows what they're going to purchase for the next couple of years. You're effectively doing a science. And as a founder, and that's the way you need to think about it, because you can't get like a, a grant if you don't have any connections to a buyer or a user and think that what you're doing in a year and a half is going to translate into traction that you'll be able to raise money against, right? Like, you have to actively go out and seek out those buyers and users if you're working with an ONR or a DARPA. And that's all possible. It's just really hard to do. And the bureaucracy isn't actually set up to, to allow that to happen. When we're talking about this, when you're getting OTAs and, and SBIRs and these different contracts, 
that can happen and usually happens in the R&D world. It can also happen in the acquisitions world where the acquisitions people are managing their own R&D because the labs are communicating with them and they don't really care what the labs are doing, which unfortunately is how it's devolved into. So just be aware that's a higher level landscape. It's all about getting to the buyers, the program managers in the acquisitions world. And then I just want to explicitly say something that, that John said, separate in your mind three things, the contract, which is John said, the authority to buy something, the customer and or user, obviously those are, or generally those are two different groups. And then the funding, those three are almost completely independent. So you can get a contract from the Air Force for a customer in the Navy and funding can come from the Pentagon. Like it, 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 it can work. It can be that crazy. And, and when you, when they talk about these contracts, they're just because you won a, there's a lot of different names for them, but if you win a billion dollar IDIQ, which means indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, that doesn't actually mean you got a billion dollars. That means the DOD has the authority to write a billion dollars worth of effectively purchase orders for you. Whenever you're thinking through these things, just be aware that winning a massive contract, like it's only so good as the money that's actually put on it. But once you get that contracting authority put in place, a lot of different groups can come and basically write purchase orders against that. I just wanted to lay out high level landscape so you guys know how to orient yourselves around, around the conversation. I hope that was helpful. Just on the end of what Jake was saying there about IDIQs, you'll often see TechCrunch articles about name your defense tech company and the billion dollar contract they sign because they got an IDIQ. What the article won't tell you, as Jake said, is that they're not actually getting a billion dollars. And that contract might have 50 people on it, all of whom have a claim against money that's being allocated potentially to the IDIQ. So I, I, just when you're looking at those headlines, realize that they're pretty misleading. They make great PR, but not necessarily much more than that. Other thing Jake did a great job okay. of pointing out is the S&T community is separate from all of this. And, and this is to point out the reason some VCs are very bearish on Sibbers. They see those essentially as essence. Please continue, Andrew. No, you're completely fine. But actually, Jake, going back and Bullock, by the way, you did once write uh, a thread on why founders mostly shouldn't work with the DOD. Can you dive a little bit deeper into that explanation? Yeah, sure. I'm obviously super passionate about working with the DOD. It's, it's going to be my, you know, lifelong mission to, to solve some of the problems that I've set out to. So I never want to like discourage from going after the DOD and pursuing them as a customer. But if you're just a generalist founder, you have some really interesting technology and you're looking for a market, the DOD probably shouldn't be your first choice. And, and the reason is something that I alluded to earlier, which is if you're unaware of how the bureaucracy works, if you don't know exactly what your use case is and what your customer is and, and, and how you're going to navigate the institution, it's generally going to be really hard within 18 to 24 months to get the actual traction, navigate the bureaucracy, find the users, find the buyers, get them inspired, and then get them to move on setting up a direct contract with you and really getting into the sales funnel, if you will, by the time you need to go out and raise your next round. Because if you get a SIBR, to John's point, if it's not associated with a program office and you're not already working with one, you'll build for 18 to 24 months of expecting a buyer to come around at some point and look at your tech. They never will because they just, they have so much going on and, and they're very disconnected from a lot of the labs. In the event that you do get a buyer to come around and, and really get interested and really like what you're doing, it'll take them about 12 months, anywhere from eight to 12 months, almost minimum, to then set up their own contract with you. And it, all these things can happen sooner, but I'm just giving you the, a, a good, safe, kind of conservative view on how to kind of plan. So once you get in contact with a, a buyer and they start to get you on contract, once you're on contract with them, now you're actually in the sales funnel and you have real traction that you might be able to raise against. But it, it could take you 24 to 36 months just to get to that point. And if you want to be on the VC treadmill and you want to be continuing to raise, it's just not enough time uh, or it's not fast enough. Uh, to get the real traction that you need to to get to your next round. And uh, having been in this space and talked to a lot of VCs in this, you can raise a seed round with the deck, but to get to Series A, most of the VCs and anybody that, that invests in space, feel free to correct me if you want, but most of them need to see a production contract. So that means you finish building and you're actually in the acquisition process before they'll give you like, before they'll write a Series A check. And so it's just really hard to get there. 
on the timeline that you could in any other sort of industry. The one industry that can be an analog here, and I'm no expert in it, but is a, is a biotech world where it's very capital intensive, long, long development time and things like that, but can obviously be very lucrative. So uh, I've heard some VCs use that as an analog model to do diligence. But yeah, I, and again, I want to close out. Obviously, I'm so passionate about working with the DoD, but if you're just a random founder looking for a market for some interesting tech that you've developed, I, I would uh, I would look elsewhere. Yeah, Jake, the, I would double tap on that. I work at one of those venture firms that's worked very closely. I work at Harpoon. And if some of you guys are familiar, we worked very closely in winning government contracts or supporting our portfolio companies. And a big reason that we very much so encourage our portfolio companies to definitely pursue a commercial product first. And what we really encourage them to do is to find products that are frankly 10x better than what's in the government, 10x cheaper. So frankly, a Herculean task, but that really is sometimes the bar. And even if you have the right person who could speak the right language and you hire the right federal person, it can be really challenging. But that said, I think some companies done this really well. One that I would highlight, if you guys are familiar, is Astronis. It's a geosatellite company. They have done a phenomenal job of securing commercial contracts and then also making sure that they are working with the DOD on these longer products. But unless you have that commercial traction up front, we have generally found that it's relatively challenging to go back. Obviously, Sibbers and some of those government grants, whether it's a DARPA or RPE, which I'm happy to talk about with anyone if you want to, ha has been helpful. But if you are going for those bigger fundraising goals, it, it is quite challenging. But that said, it's been done and, and it's been pretty cool to see this ecosystem grow. I guess I'll provide um, a little bit of an alternate perspective for a hardware-focused venture. So we're a little bit more forgiving on timeline for hardware products and wanting to see the milestones get hit and the traction get made. And sometimes that's just the initial conversations to know that they're going out and speaking with the co-coms and the customers and that they're creating the excitement of what the product is. There's, I imagine that trading things as dual use is always good, right? Like we want to see the commercial marketplace, but for hardware startups, there is a little bit more of making sure that the product gets developed well too. Okay. And with that there, I want to move on to this idea of uh, product integration. And so one of the things I've learned uh, with working with the government isn't as capable or as have as much of a technical, let's say, acumen as the rest of us do in this kind of silicon, virtual Silicon Valley ecosystem. And so one of those things you have, I've learned is you have to prepare how to integrate the product itself. That product integration is almost as important or maybe even more important than the quality of the product or if the product suits all the system requirements. So I'd like to point this to Griffin Barnicket and even Jake Chapman as you will on how, how do you think we should manage integration of a product or is it even likely possible right now? Jake, do you want to take the product integration step? Sure. Although I feel like I don't want to pick on Jake Bullock, but this is, uh, this is like right up his alley. I think the, the DOD, I mean, one of the ways that the DOD is not a great customer isn't just providing the agile feedback in product development and in integration, but at the same time, like they're just as demanding a customer that can be just as demanding as anybody. And so it makes it really hard to build something that gets product market fit or to do it in an, in an agile way. And I think Jake's done a pretty good job navigating that more than most founders, but it's, it's not easy. And I'll also say that different parts of the, we're talking about the DOD and as an, as a customer in a monolithic sense, but the DOD is not a single organization. It is a thousand organizations and you will find some are much better than others. I think the, you'd find SOCOM to be more agile than the average, for instance. But yeah, I, I don't know if that was a great answer, but I think integration is particularly hard. Yeah. And I, I would, I think it's important to differentiate too. There's systems integrators and there's actual IT integrators. And so if you look at most of the civilian sector outside of the DOD, these people are the ones who wield most of the power. Um, they're the ones who actually interface with the buyer the most. And there's a lot of insider ball. And so when you actually want to go and sell software outside of the DOD, you start to realize how foundational they are to the system. It's basically been formed around them over 70 years of lobbying and other types of fun stuff. And so I think if you're coming in, there's also crossover of the DOD when you look at, you know, the politics where it's more DevOps, you have software. Integration is pretty key. And that element just by itself as a technology company is pretty critical. So you can also integrate that alongside what you're building because it just gives you more leverage, gives you more access, eggs in multiple baskets. 
it's incredibly risky when you're building one single technology. A customer who is incredibly hard to build for, probably one of the hardest to build for, one of the hardest to sell for, uh, the most volatile on decision-making and, and processes. And so if you're relying on like a single thing to actually win, it's incredibly risky. It's a city building where you have one resource, maybe it's, so you have a great port, you have some coal lines, et cetera. You really have to focus on empire building where you have multiple resources, multiple eggs in the basket. If there's volatility on one, it doesn't affect the whole. And so I think more people need to take this kind of empire approach to building for government, which you see a lot in the side and the side. So I'd like to bring up something interesting as an aside to what Griffin said, to try to combat the 70 years of lobbying, especially for new emergent technologies. One of the more interesting things I've seen in my research, and I'm going to, I like giving credit where it's due. So I'm going to call it the Tyler Ellis playbook. He works at Commonwealth Fusion, and he basically made an industry association for all of the fusion startups so that they could lobby to Congress with one voice. And they're working on essentially getting through the Department of Energy, something similar to the NASA COTS program. So if you'll remember back in the day, NASA commercial off-the-shelf buying program for launches was not only about SpaceX, right? Orbital ATK was in there and Sierra Nevada, right? So when you have multiple companies coming together in an emergent area and saying, hey, this is critical technology, pay attention to us. I think organizing up front and speaking as a unified voice, things will happen faster. Yeah, I'll, I'll double tap on that. I think if you're building in the defense space and your product at some point is going to threaten any of the primes, when you become a real threat, they'll fight you in DC as much as they'll fight you in the lab by trying to outproduct you. And so it pays real dividends to band together with other startups in your space and get some lobbying effort put together. My, my just my pessimistic take on this is that if you're relying on the DOD to fundamentally change how it acquires technologies in order for what you're building to be successful, I think it's a fool's error. When you go and you experience what it's like in the civilian sectors, if you go and HUD, see how they acquire technology, it's mostly IT. You go to Department of Interior, what you realize is you see what it really is. So like the DOD has this big kind of mystique because they have this whole innovation theater. A lot of cases, it's propaganda, but it's needed. How you get the industrial base excited. But when you pull that away and that math and you look what's actually there, it's really unappealing to actually sell to. And so if you look at how the civilian sectors actually acquire technology, you get a much more honest look because they don't have that innovation theater present. It, it's very close to what happens with the DOD and you almost get like a realer take. And so I think what you'll see in these other sectors is the, I don't want to call it corruption, but the control that a lot of these larger organizations have with tribes could be salting firms, right? Like Deloitte, you, you see it much more clearly than you do with the DOD. And so if you really want an honest take for whether things are going to change in the DOD or if there's how long it's going to take, I think it's really wise to look at how things have changed on the civilian side. I see Eric is on. I'm curious, Eric, for your take, because you've been really trying to work on acquisition reform as a thread in your research. Yeah, definitely. I mean, these, these are large institutional problems that go back to really the 1960s, where we adopted these Soviet five-year plans. And there's an ossification that happened around it. So I agree with the comment that was essentially, you can't go after or try to sell the DOD things and presume that they're going to do things differently. And so one of the things I tell a lot of companies on this front is like, when you put in a proposal, you're trying to win DOD work, you're going to focus all on your technology and like what that means relative to the requirement. But they don't really, a lot of them don't have the technical expertise. They'll just say, okay, what did you propose? Does that map to my requirements? And then the real thing is like the business process. Did you meet the process? Do you look like what a prime would submit? And so I tell a lot of people do good on the technical part, but if you want to win the contract, you're not going to win unless you break down that price into a work breakdown structure, labor categories, time phase it, even if you don't expect to actually execute in that way, but just present it because a lot of times the differentiator is the cost piece because that's what they understand. Yeah, like that's, it's an unfortunate piece. Like we can talk about reform and programs of record, but when you're living in the space and you're just trying to get the work, focusing on like these business processes, the cost volume is often the differentiator because they want to see, can you break that down? And do you have like this plan? Everything is... Can you plan and do you execute to that plan, which is very different from, I think, a lot of what the commercial space does. Yep. I will I'll second that. That is a non-trivial issue for a startup to get over. Like when you're going to price out something, 
you've got to have different quotes for every single screw that you're going to include in the product that you got from suppliers and, and why you're justifying. Like it's, it is really onerous. So it's, it's, that is a non-trivial thing. And then, you know, that the waterfall process they expect you to fit this into is also not how startups fundamentally build products, which is very iterative. It, you know, includes a lot of like quick decision-making and, and, and rethinking of assumptions that like the way that you're going to have to write your proposal will lock you in to a very defined waterfall process that ultimately leads to bad products. The other thing I wanted to step back and talk a little bit about why it's really hard to integrate on a technical level, right? Like in the civilian world, we have all these platforms out there to reach our end customers. If you want to build a piece of hardware and sell it, you can sell it through Amazon. If you want to reach half the population on the planet, you build an iPhone app. There's like a handful of platforms, mostly operating systems that you can build to effectively reach your customer and get distribution. So these very important horizontal platforms, right? Those don't exist in the view. Like that evolution in the technology stacks never happened. And so what you have is an industry where all of these primes, they, they have lock-in through having very siloed and proprietary tech stacks. If I have a drone, I have the specific radio that goes with that drone and the specific controller that controls that drone, and it doesn't control any other drone out there, very siloed. And so how do we get these different technologies to talk to each other with the entire industry, like the incentives for the industry? They've always been around having lock-in through vertical integration through proprietary tech stacks, right? So the entire industry doesn't want to shift to horizontal platforms because that will cause new incumbents to emerge and it will effectively erode the power that these tribes have. You take that technical complexity and mix it with the fact that the government bureaucracy literally calcified around these kind of vertical product categories, if you will. And so you have all these super siloed bureaucratic fiefdoms where if you have a horizontal platform, like we sell across most of the program offices that are out there. And so we get, we, one of our contracts has two and we'll soon have three program offices collaborating on it, all contributing money, all putting in their own thoughts on how the product kind of will roll out. That is incredibly rare to get multiple program offices, multiple bureaucrats to work together is a really hard thing to do. And, and so if you're going to cut across multiple products, I think Griffin said something about have different sort of irons in the fire where if one goes down, it won't affect the others because it's, it's going to be really difficult to roll out the same solution to all your different customers out there because there is no platform, there's no iOS to plug into or no Android to build to. So at a technical level, it's very difficult from a sales cycle perspective, it's, or a go-to-market perspective, very difficult because you got to cross cut across multiple program offices and often they don't talk to each other and there's even a lot of competition between them at times. So, you know, the problems, the, the complexity is just like enormous and you got to be really thoughtful if you're going to approach a, the DOD in this way. I will say this though, for the companies that figure out how to do it, that's one of the biggest benefits that the DOD or one of the biggest things that the DOD is actually looking for. They know systems talk to each other. And then the warfighter ends up doing the integration on the edge. And of course, that's not what they're good at. They don't want to be doing it. That's why none of the things actually end up working in the law. And so right now, there's this whole push amongst the program offices to get these technologies to, to collaborate with each other. I'm sure you guys have all heard of JADC2 and all these other things. It's really difficult because the bureaucracy is so calcified around its current state and it probably isn't going to change. If you can do that and do it well, then you will get a lot of traction in the DOD. Eric and Jake, those are... I, I agree a lot of points were, but where I might slightly push back or would love to get your perspectives and other people's perspectives for sure on is I agree with you. It's so Byzantine, but I do think there's a lot of ARB opportunities, frankly, out there. And hopefully I don't get canceled for saying something like this out in, with the primes. So this is from at least from my experience working with our portfolio companies and we do a lot with federal. One, the biggest challenge is actually a lot of the acquisition officers, they're, they only serve two, three years in one vertical. So they might be forced or they might be placed in a machine learning pod for two years, even though they're an electrical engineer. And then once they got their feet wet after two years, they're like spun out and they're put into like propulsion acquisition. And they're like, what the hell is going on? And that's a big challenge we've found because once, you know, these startups or companies like those folks hopefully here are building and they're like, I've been doing what you've been telling me for two years. And then they just get smacked. And it's like, oh, damn. And so I think going direct to federal, I could not agree more. It's such a calcified and hard challenge. But what does excite me is a lot of these big primes, frankly, don't have the technological 
fortitude again hopefully i don't get canceled by any primes here but it's uh they just don't have the resources frankly to build in-house and i think that is where if you're building in this space you should actually see which of these large contracts that they want that you could subcontract the beauty of subcontracts is you can win a lot of revenue up front and it could actually be viewed either federal or commercial that's up for debate i'm happy to talk about that with anyone um so i would really encourage if anyone's building in this space to really look for those type of large contracts if you look at the new ULA and Amazon partnership, even with satellites, it's, you know, give or take a couple billion dollars. I will put a lot of money that half of it will be subcontracted out and it'll generally go to startups like you guys or, or startup builders around here. And I really encourage you to push forward on, on those fronts. And, and then I think the last point, I couldn't agree more on the point that federal, if you are going strictly federal, I think that should be like once you're in a growth stage, because frankly, it's going to require a lot of resources. If you ask some of our portfolio companies like Astronis, Solugen, or even Ursa, you're going to eventually have to go hire a federal person just to focus on it and speak the language, I'm sure, I think, which was what Eric and Jake were touching on a bit. So I'll, I'll stop there. Hopefully that was helpful. Hey, one thing I wanted to, to add, thanks, thanks Andrew, for, for bringing me on. Um, double tapping what Eric said earlier, I'm a judge and a reviewer for a number of like grant applications and SBIR phase two applications that come through. And the number of times I see something that doesn't match what we asked as part of like the re the requirements or the questions asked, or even the format that it was asked in. So I'm part of, I support some technical portfolios and we'll see stuff come through that's really technically sound, but you didn't answer the question that was asked in the way it was asked of you. And if you can't do that, I will 100% reject those every time. And we do all the time. So those are marked very harshly. And in the comments, you can see every judge will say literally the same thing, like love the solution really bad packaging. And I think the other part I want to just double tap on is something Jimmy said and also Eric was you can explore, and this is going to be really controversial, but it's a very slow way to do it. You can explore relationships through industry consortiums, which I've done for, for companies in some kind of random fields, the long range precision fires and whatnot, where you can work with a larger uh, group of kind of primes who is, who has set up a consortium specifically to pull you through to a sub opportunity. So those are also good things to explore. Thanks all. Yeah, real quick on the consortium thing. There's also a way to do that. So the Space Enterprise Consortium, they uh, have a day, I want to say once a year in maybe October, November in the fall, where you're actually able to go on site and meet with some of the customer base and just have open-ended discussions. And I think that's probably one of the most um, beneficial things out of that consortium model is being able to have the conversations with the end users. And that happens so rarely because of fairness in the procurement process. So being part of these consortiums, I do think, unfortunately, you do have to pay the member fee, but there are benefits. And the other benefit for the consortium model with OTAs is faster turn on the contract. So their average time to contract award is about 90 days rather than sitting and arguing over fee. Uh, Eric. Do you have anything else? I guess just harping on that, that OT front, like it just doesn't feel how far is it going? Like the space enterprise consortium, I believe they had a $12 billion ceiling and they've obligated a hundred million to it. A couple of years ago, they're like, we're going to 24 X our OTs. And it's just most of the OTs, you get that award and then they transition it to a far contract and then they just compete out everything that you've done. And you're not likely the winner for one reason or another, unless you team. So they, the government wants you to team. They want you to get in that and then get out of the OT realm. Will there be enough production contracts through OTs where you can keep your business systems, like not become a government business system contractor? I don't blame Lockheed or Boeing for what they are. They are what the government has incentivized them to do. And so the more that you take on some of these governmenty roles so that you can win all these contracts, the more stovepiped your systems become, the less you're able to be modular and iterative. And I, I don't know, we're at an inflection point and are OTs going to keep growing or will they just do what they've done like decades in the past where we get a little spurt and then they go away and then we get a spurt again and then they go away. We're at that inflection point in acquisition reform more generally across all of those areas, budgeting, contracting, acquisition, and the like. I'm agreeing co completely with that. And I'm um, talking again about the incentive structure on the government side, we're incentivized to reduce risk. That's why we end up awarding the primes over and over again. So changing the incentive structure, not just for the company side, but also internally for the folks awarding the contracts, I think is very important to see some progress. 
I have a question for Jimmy actually on the the recommendation of taking the the subcontracting route. Have you guys at Harpoon seen any tendency for companies that are pursuing that to almost get get locked in the the prime version of a cibber mill where they really get off track on core product development and they just chase subcontract after subcontract, which is a big problem yeah. with with cibber. Yeah, no, that that's an excellent point, Jake. I, I'm glad you brought that point. And again, this is going to sound somewhat subjective, but it really depends. Are you a commoditized product? Is it another piece of software or a certain parts maker that someone else can 3D print for cheaper? Or are you something that they literally can't replicate, which is hopefully where a lot of this American industrialism and dynamism will hopefully host up. So what I mean, be very specific, certain companies, whether they're making rocket engines, which is very hard to replicate, or anything from hypersonic missile parts. So some of those, frankly, are harder to engineer from a prime side. We have seen great success. If it's a 3D printing solution for a couple of bolts, that is where it gets a bit challenging. Does that answer your question, Jake? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Although, I'm guessing Harpoon isn't investing in a whole lot of 3D printing solutions for just a couple of bolts, right? That's right. So I guess that's where we do our homework up front in the sense of we do really think with this defense budget and frankly with inflation, it's relatively flat, but this renewed interest and you are seeing a lot of these primes. Like I think there was an article in the journal today that folks saw about how Boeing, because their commercial business has frankly gone poo-poo, it's forcing them to double down on defense. And so they're going to do this billion and a half aircraft project. Well, it's good luck. I don't know if you have the talent to really build the software, let alone some parts of the hardware. And I think those are the opportunities that I frankly find the most exciting in in defense innovation for startups. This is just a a humorous anecdote for the folks here. I was talking with uh, someone in Corp Dev, a senior Corp Dev at one of the big primes that everyone knows. And uh, we were talking about what a prime contractor really is. And I said, yeah, I don't want to offend you, but I think you're like a bunch of second tier engineering organizations like stitched together with some like regulatory relations and legislative affairs and a finance department. And that's really all you are. He said, oh, I think you're absolutely right. You got one thing wrong. We're a bunch of third tier engineering organizations stitched together with all that crap. And then we talked a little bit about like their ability to hire. And they just, they don't even try to hire from like top tier engineering schools. It's just like they're going to the, the small state schools and, and filling their ranks with whoever they can get to join the team. So I don't know. I thought, I thought it was funny. They also recognize it. That's incredible. The, the sad part is they're the ones that have all the money right now. So we got to go track some for everyone. They got all the money, but they, they have forward pricing rates that are dictated by DCMA, which is in an average rate pay ban. They can't pay, right? So they, they think Andurl and Palantir are unfair, but Palantir and Andurl don't have the types of contracts which initiate a lot of these things cost and software data reporting, earned value management reporting, forward pricing rate reporting, all this stuff so they get out of it. But then what do they not get out of that? They have to self-fund and hope someone will pay on the back end with margins large enough to make it worth their while. Whereas a Lockheed gets all of their $1.2 billion of IRAD spread and paid for by the government. And they get the IP rights out of anything that, that comes from that. Yeah, there's just a bunch of weirdness that they have to also go through that forces them into that way. The, the only thing I'll say for fairness in terms of the talent uh, attraction pool that, that we see both in uh, Army Innovation and other places is it's, I think Eric had mentioned this earlier, it's about how you incentivize things. Most government contracting officers and acquisitions officers aren't dumb. They aren't bad people, right? They, they, aren't, they aren't stupid people. We try to bait them with that brush sometimes because it's easy. You have to think about their incentives. No one ever got promoted for doing something risky in the government. No one ever got promoted faster for doing something cool or innovative, you get promoted the same time as the other person who just fogs a mirror. So that incentive system is is what drives that. And so that, that's just something I want to make sure that people don't lose sight of. Agree completely. The incentive structure is totally backwards. Yeah, thank you. So one thing I just want to, I think that's going a little bit backwards, but just to like highlight to everyone, why have the primes been so dominant for so long? I think Captain Boyles actually spoke about this in the podcast that like we've had five primes for the last like 120 years. So if, you know, anybody, maybe Griffin, why the primes so dominant and why is it so hard to become a prime? At a high level, I don't want to make too many claims or I'll go capped if I walked outside of my apartment. But I think people don't often realize how foundationally is a government, how corrupt the system is on all fronts. And that obviously spreads into 
areas like acquisition and then more specifically into the institutions within the DOD. A lot of it's been lobbied. A lot of the system has been carved by big players, right? So our system isn't created by people who are paid by the government to do so. It's people who want in a certain way. So they lobby the government to create in that format. And so I think that has to be something you remember when you go and engage with the government is that you're essentially playing with the system that was built against you. And so if you're building a company from a Silicon Valley perspective of we're going to raise capital, build this, you're playing against a competitor that is much closer in proximity to your customer. They probably, as such, they know people tied to that that you wouldn't know being on the you know, completely other side of the country. They use financial instruments to fund themselves that are pretty taboo if you're in the Valley. And, and, and they're not afraid to lobby and, and they know the right lobbyists. They have the right lawyers. They know what's happening. They're playing inside ball. And so I'd almost say the entire system has been carved by that. And that goes for, for most industries, not just defense acquisition. It goes for everything from, from food to agriculture, farming. It's everywhere, manufacturing. And I think it, if you understand how that inside ball works, how those strings are pulled, what the influences are, it makes actually getting into that system much, much easier than if you're attacking it like you'd attack a SaaS company. But yeah, that's all I'm going to say about. I think if you want to be uh, generous, the primes that are building destroyers and aircraft carriers and Lockheed building the F-35, if we're going to build large, exquisite, $100 billion platforms, you're only going to have a small handful of companies doing it. Like we don't need a bunch of Navy shipbuilders. The question is, should we be building or investing so much of our or precious resources in the giant platforms and then making them not interoperable and open architecture and that kind of stuff. I think that's why partially answers why we have so few primes and maybe why if we move towards smaller, more credible systems, you'll see, you'll see a proliferation of new companies coming up. If you want a tangible example on the lobbying front, it is multifaceted in terms of what departments are involved. Let's say the government wants a certain chemical, all right? And the people that know how to produce that typically come from one or two universities. Maybe there is a program yet. And so the firm that produces this chemical will go and, and lobby the Department of Education or some other type of institution to essentially fund the creation of some type of program at their state or it would be a private university. And that organization created a very close relationship with the university and basically harvest talent directly from there. They would fund all their, their research programs, et cetera. And then that same chemical company would lobby the government or inside ball to basically put certain requirements on those contracts that would require someone with a certain technical skill set and this specialization. And the only places accredited for that specialization would be the two schools where they fund all of that research. And so we've created, essentially created a loop where you've locked yourself into a system across multiple departments, across multiple institutions that you have full control over. And then in that, it gets far worse than that, but that's just a light example. Yeah, coming from, I guess, the Pentagon side, I have a slightly different view. I, I think it's the government which created a monopsony structure, right? We want zero duplication, redundancy, and overlap. We want the single best answer that's the most, that was the whole ideology of the 60s and 70s. So when you have a monopsony buyer, it's just always going to create a monopoly on the other side. And so why we get these big, massive program stovepipes, it's just that's just the way the government works. We have a long requirements process. We have a long acquisition planning process. We have a long budgeting process. We have to get 50 offices, 50 separate consensual offices on board with the requirements. And in order to do that, you can only do incremental stuff from what you know exists. So I tend to, I know industry does lobby and I know industry is on the inside and they're helping shape these requirements, but the government's fixation on waterfall baseline planning just figure everything out before you start. And then I'm going to measure you to that thing. It creates such a huge hurdle and so many years that everyone wants to just pack everything into the biggest program possible. And that just means only the biggest primes can win it because they're the only ones qualified. That's, I guess that's part of my view. And we've lost the technical capability on the government side to disaggregate, move incrementally and have these subjective evaluations and collaboration where they can actually work in a more iterative and I guess, market-oriented manner. Hey, this is AJ from, from Hermes. A couple kind of thoughts here. So one, I think a lot of us on the outside have been a little bit weary about getting our hands dirty and playing the game the way it's played. Frankly, that's what's required. Like in order to work within a system that's been entrenched for decades, decades you're not going to change it overnight, as I think Eric had, had mentioned earlier. You have to understand the physics of the system and play the game and act from the inside. So like 
the fact that the big primes are shaping requirements, that's how you build these programs. And I think it, it takes for folks coming from a different cultural set, whether it's you know, Valley or elsewhere, just outside the defense domain. It takes a lot of time to understand that there's a business development process that happens outside the government that you do as a company. And then there's a whole other process that happens on the inside. That's within the Pentagon. It's within the PEOs. And it's up on the hill. And how you shape that is just not a normal sales process that you would run into it, you know, with a, with a large enterprise. Fast company, for example, you have to throw that like unwillingness to get your hands dirty out of the window. This is just how the game is played and understanding that and bringing an innovative approach where you change the risk calculus. And that's something that I think the way the primes have, have been built to date, they take very little risk. Obviously, the government takes on a lot of risk and that manifests itself in a cost type contract. Don't even get me started on the incentive structure that, that builds. But when you can change the risk calculus, I think it, it offers the, the government an opportunity to really change the way that they, they approach a program. When you're coming not into the S&T stage, but rather straight into the procurement stage with something that can integrate directly with uh, you know, a set of systems that are already out there, it, it's not the way that the prime typically do business today. Yeah, there's just like just immense, I think, opportunity now for companies like Endural and, and others who have formed up in that light, dual use in many cases, but in some cases not, can really, really change the way that the, this prime structure looks in the future. Awesome. Thank you, AJ, on commenting. I think it's been uh, an amazing discussion so far. We typically close the discussions on the one hour mark, but if there is still some juice left here, we can, I'm happy to keep on going maybe 10 or 15 more minutes. So what do you guys think? Yeah, I wouldn't mind to, uh, talk a little bit about the open BAAs and what I find exciting about them. That's great. I also wanted to talk about, so this morning I was reading Martin's 10K from, for, for this year and speaking about incentives, they were mentioning this other transaction authority agreements, which is like a, a way by which Lockheed is mentioning that smaller companies that are not the traditional, yeah, traditional defense contractors can actually sell to the DOD. I'm just curious to, to hear your thoughts on that, whether this is something real or it's more of, of a small risk for them. I'll just mention, I don't know if you guys caught the Reagan forum, the new CEO at Lockheed, he, he was like, we don't believe in the requirements approach. We believe in taking more self-funded risk and then providing those solutions back to government. I don't know what to make of it. Maybe the CEO is trying to push Lockheed in the right direction because they have all these networking things that are cross-cutting, not in these vertical stovepipes, and they're also struggling. I don't know. It's up in the air. It's weird. I, uh, my take would be it's probably just a reference point, similar to how Google says it doesn't have a search monopoly because it's an advertising company. They'd probably just sprinkling things into the public that just push away this idea that they have too much power, but maybe I'm just a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I think the, the theory of the OTAs is better than their implementation today. They were originally a device in, I want to say, like the early 60s for NASA to go fast, to go and get these non-traditional suppliers and to accomplish their mission quickly. And they got resurrected maybe like five, six years ago. And people have been piling on and trying to use them as a way to get around the bar. So you don't need federally certified accounting. You can go to the firm fixed price plus milestone payment structure. But you don't have to go through an OTA in order to do that. So there's two ways to get an OTA. One is direct through a contracting office. DARPA often does a lot through the OT structure. DIU operates through one as well. Or you go through the consortium model, which I spoke on. What I'm excited about with this sort of open BAA structure as an alternative to the OTA is that it's a fishing net. I know some folks at AFRL Edwards, Rich Bernstein and Jake Pomerleau, who are doing this and they're going to write a white paper on their process. But DARPA also does this as well, where you just have an open call year round and people can submit their great ideas to it. So you can talk to different companies, things you would have never thought to write requirements for, learn about them. And if you like what you see, you can do firm fixed price with milestone payments. And there you go. You don't need the FAR certified accounting for the small business. Yeah. But where does the BAA go? Usually... You, you get the BAA and then you're stuck and go out and find a program office that got money for you for the next phase. I like the commercial solutions opening because it actually is broader, not just like the S&T stuff that the B BAA can only be in the S&T portfolio. But yeah, I, I like that stuff, what they're doing. It's just, where does it go? That's my question. I think that's the ultimate question, right? How do you go from S&T to, to the program record to the ultimate customer? Guys, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but can't you use the competitions that you won to get that BAA 
as sole source justification to get into an MTA or something like that? No, that's that's Cibber phase two. You could get a Cibber phase three follow on sole source. And then OTAs, of course, you get the sole source follow on for production. But again, most program offices will say OTAs and MTA the middle tier is fine for prototyping. But when I get to a real program, I got to transition to the regular stuff. So again, we get back to this culture of procurement. Are the authorities there? Why aren't they using them? It's a good question. Yeah. And I think you just need the nail on the head where it's the contracting officers can legally do it. It's just finding one that actually will do it seems to be the biggest problem for a lot of these acquisition folks. But it's also the money, right? Because if you have a new thing and you prove this BAA, then like the program offices, they've programmed their money five years in the past and they have to execute to that cost schedule technical. And you say, this thing is great, buy it. And they're like, yeah, it's great, but like, where's the money? I'm not funded to that. I got to keep doing my requirement. I can't just pivot that money to you. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, there's also the funding piece. I think that's where you have to play the game at the PEO level and on the Hill. If you don't have dollars in the POM and in the FIDEP, then you won't see it. And that won't get there without PEOs willing to put something in their budget. And then the corresponding authorization and appropriation language coming from Congress and that's, I think, like the big time is getting that done in a like venture realistic timescale without being able to phase other pieces of revenue in along the way. That's like where the real challenge of this whole transition piece really lives. Yeah. And when you start talking about having to work through Congress, if you need an authorization in the NDAA, then you're waiting however long it takes for that year's NDAA to pass and get signed into law. So let's say six months. And then if that's to feed into appropriations, now you're waiting until the next year's appropriations that feeds the fiscal year. So you're pushing yourself out, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, in a best case scenario, if that's the road you're going down, which is certainly a game that the, the prime can play all day long, but it's a little bit harder for small startups. I'm not saying you shouldn't play it. I think you're right, AJ, but timing is tricky. Oh, yeah. So Jake, you mentioned something about wanting Army VC to be the Sherpa for, for startups. Can you maybe speak on that a little more? Yeah, sure. I think as this conversation over the last hour or so has probably made clear, there are there are a lot of challenges with working with the DOD as your customer. And there are only a small handful of investors that are interested enough in the space and uh, are masochistic enough to stay in it. Harpoon and, and Jimmy on the call here, they're, they're definitely a, a smart group, but there's not a lot. And there are a lot of investors that who will dabble in the space. And I think can lead founders astray. I think there are a lot of people in the DOD innovation ecosystem that pejoratively might be referred to as innovation theater that will also lead founders astray, not necessarily intentionally, but again, it's the way their incentives are. Or as we talked about earlier, they're just in the S&T organization and they have high hopes, but whatever they're doing is just never going to make it to acquisitions. And so I think one of the things we want to do is ultimately long-term is help startups who are trying to work with the department navigate all of the, the craziness. And if, if I were to share with you my crazy 10 year vision, it would be to build all of the glue that stitches a prime together internal to a venture firm, right? So the right sort of legislative affairs, contracting finance organization, and to work almost as a meta prime with the startups that we see to make it a little bit easier for them to compete toe to toe with the big primes. And so when I think about what does it mean to be a Sherpa for companies working in defense innovation, that's, that's a little bit of it. So I plan on having a part two to this and I actually want to dig deeper on what Jake's, you know, long-term plan is. Cause I read this article not too long ago on private ARPA by Benjamin Reinhardt. And part of the issue here too, is that venture capital, we have our own incentives, our fiduciary to the LPs to return these massive 100 Xer companies. And sometimes not all innovation is meant for that, but yet, yet it's still useful. And as we've highlighted today, that government can be a bit slow or maybe outdated to some extent. So what's a more agile way that we can fund innovation and not just innovation for DOD or defense, but even energy or biotech, actually tech bio, as we like to call it, Acantos, and move on those things. So that would probably be agenda for our next discussion whenever we have that. But uh, yeah, I just want to thank everyone for coming tonight and I'll leave it off to Pablo. 
awesome, Andrew, for leading the discussion. Um, yeah, so thanks everyone for coming. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.